Welcome to Big Questions. My guest this week is Deborah Lee, the chairman and CEO of BET. Deborah has been named one of the most powerful 100 women in entertainment. And when it comes to broadcasting, we're talking Hall of Fame here. There's a moment in this conversation that I'll never forget. It involves a soda machine that is now in a museum. And it allowed me to understand what it must feel like to be a woman when you learn that a man is being paid more than you are to do the same job. When you hear the story behind it, I think you'll understand why it's important to be having these conversations. Week after week, they keep taking me to new places. I want to thank everyone who sends tweets and emails in support of this podcast. A few days ago, I got a photo from Vlad in Paris. The picture showed the logo of Big Questions on the dashboard screen of his car as the snow came down in Paris. It made me realize the impact these conversations might have all around the world. So thanks, Vlad. Last week, Melanie Whelan, the CEO of SoulCycle, explained to me the importance of knowing my listeners. And I realized, unless my listeners email me or tweet me, I have no idea who they are or where they are. So please, feel free to send me a photo of where you're listening to Big Questions at calfussman.com. I'll put these photos up on a map of the world. Just thinking of that image makes me feel like I'm traveling for the first time all over again. You know what I'm going to do? At the end of this year, I'll put all the photos in a gigantic fishbowl and pull one out. Then I'm going to take a trip to the city or town where that listener lives and take him or her out for a great meal. So send along those pictures. I need to know who you are. And wherever you are, cheers. But first, check out my new Squarespace website at calfussman.com. It sings. The photos pop off the page. The copy is so clear, crisp, and clean. If Squarespace can do that for me, remember, I'm an old school guy who's just getting into social media. Imagine what it can do for you. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to get 10% off your purchase of a new domain name or website. If you're half as happy as I am with Squarespace, you'll be overjoyed. And I also want to thank my friends at ZipRecruiter. If you need to hire, go straight to ZipRecruiter.com. All you got to do is type in the job description, and with a single click, you'll get qualified candidates within 24 hours. It may not even take that long. I'm telling you, these algorithms do not mess around. So take advantage of them. Type in ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a free trial. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and I'm so happy to be with my guest today, the chairman and CEO of BET, Deborah Lee. Ding, 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 ding. There we go. Now, I just found out just a second ago that Deborah has never listened to a podcast. I know. I, I feel bad admitting that, but it's true. It's on my to-do list. And, and you're saying that. And I'm going to listen to yours. Well, well thank you very right, much. Right. But your children listen to them. My children do, and they've given me suggested people to listen to. I just haven't had time to figure it out. You know, every time you switch platforms, you have to figure it out. So I miss Facebook totally. I just never got into it because, you know, everyone said, oh, you know, the people from high school can get in touch with you. I, I figured if someone from high school hasn't gotten in touch with me in these 40 years, 40-some years, I don't want to be in touch with them. So that didn't do it for me. Uh, but then Twitter came along, and I had liked Twitter. You know, I like getting the news in, in small chunks, and um, I like following people that I care about. It gave me a platform to correspond with celebrities, to show my audience, the audience of BET, what I uh, personally am interested in. Uh, it gave me a way to promote our shows. So tw Twitter gave me some business reasons to join. Uh, so I've been on Twitter for a long time, and then I got on Instagram because my kids are on Instagram, and they're in their 20s, and, you know, if you don't see them on Instagram, you don't know whether they're alive or not. So, oh, no. so Instagram's the way I find out what they did last night. And I was on Snapchat for a while for the same reason. But, you know, every, every platform takes some time, and I just haven't had time to figure out podcasts and figure out who I want to listen to. Uh, but as I said, it's on my to-do list, and this gives me a good reason uh, to listen to one. What is the, a day in the life like for the chairman and CEO of BET? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I usually, you want all the details? Uh, what time I get up? Sure. Okay. Let me know. What, what, what happened? You get up okay. in the morning, I what get happens? up 6.45, no later than 7 o'clock. I want to hear the news on uh, Good Morning America at the top of the hour. Um, if I get up before 6.45, I get on Twitter immediately and see what I've missed. Then I read my email. So I'm probably in bed for another half an hour reading email and looking at Twitter and Instagram before I get up. Uh, then I get up, get breakfast, get ready for work. So I try to be in the work by, you know, 9.30. Um, and then it depends on the day, but most of the day is filled with meetings with, you know, my executive team or outside people, external people that want to come in and pitch me TV shows or ideas or um, dealing with other boards that I'm on. I'm on several other boards, uh, for-profit and not-for-profit. Um, doing email again, you know, a lot of work gets done through email these days. Uh, conference calls. So it's a mixture of meetings, conference calls, um, you know, emails, catching up on that. And that goes on to seven. 
7.30, and then usually I have some sort of evening event, um, something to do with, you know, entertainment or communications or other uh, not-for-profits I support. Uh, so there could be some weeks where I'm out four nights out of five. Um, and then on the weekends, um, I try to recover, <laughs> do other kind of events. Uh, but it's it's more than a full-time job. One of the things that I'm really excited to ask you about mm-hmm. is something that has never excited me. Mm. And that is meetings. Because mm. I've never really had a job, so I never really had to show up in meetings. I've always been a writer right. out in the field. Yeah. Uh, but b- before we get that, I'd like to just get a little background so everybody could understand mm-hmm. the, the context of where you've come mm-hmm. by knowing where you came from. Mm-hmm. So where were you raised? Um, I was raised mostly in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, I always say it was the segregated South because it was. Um, but my father was a major in the Army. And uh, during my younger years, we moved around a lot. So I was born in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. When I was six months old, we moved to Germany for four years. Then we moved to D.C. for three years. My dad taught ROTC at Howard. Then we moved to Compton for a couple of years. Uh, I stayed here through the Watts riots in the 60s. And then what was that like? It was, it was a little scary. I think well, what that do you was, remember? What do you remember? I remember that black people in Compton and Watts, particularly Watts, but it spilled over into Compton, were not happy. Um, and I think it was the first time, the first images I remember seeing and the first time I realized that race uh, was an issue was I saw photos from the sit-ins of the South Uh, at lunch counters. Um, And I remember being in Compton, going to a dance class, and they had photos on the wall of African-American college students sitting at lunch counters, and they had ketchup and mustard thrown on them. And I was like, wow, people must really not like them if they're throwing, you know, ketchup and mustard. And I had been in very integrated environments up until then, you know, because my dad was in the Army. It was very integrated. Um, And then we moved to Compton, and Compton at that time was very integrated. There were a lot of Hispanic and white kids at the school I went to. Um, So this was the first time I really realized race was an issue. And so living... What what does that do to you when you go home at night and you have that first observation? Yeah, well, it's it's, um, perplexing. You know, because I realized I was, you know, African-American or black or colored or whatever we called ourselves. Negro at the time probably was the word of the day. Um, So, you know, you wonder why people would hate you and your family and your friends. Um, So that was um, that was unnerving. And then um, people started uh, being assassinated. You know, John Kennedy was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. And Dr. then Martin Dr. King. Martin Luther King. And by the time Dr. King was assassinated and I could hear my parents talk about issues, that implied to me, if you ever tried to do anything positive in this world and change the world, you were going to be killed. 
you know, I had three examples, and I was still very young at the time. I had three examples of people my parents admired um, and thought were trying to change the world for good, and they were killed. I mean, that left a, um, a scar on me. Um, and then we moved to Greensboro. Can you, can you remember when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated? Uh, do, do you have a, like an image of that day in your mind? I do. I, the, the thing I remember about that day was coming home from school and my mother, or maybe it was later on in the evening, I can't remember, but my mother was crying. And I didn't see her cry often, so, you know, I knew something horrible had happened, and she told us that Dr. Martin Luther King had been killed. Then I remember watching the news and people worried about major cities in the country burning down. And we had just left Watts and Compton. So I had lived through that. And I had lived through a period of staying in the house for two weeks because it was too dangerous to go outside. I remember we lived not too far from Compton Boulevard, and I remember seeing signs in the window saying colored owned or black owned. And those were store owners trying to save their stores by letting the rioters and the looters know that this was owned by someone black. That had an impact on me. I was like, wow, that's interesting. Um, and I remember going to Greensboro. I was in the sixth grade, and I would draw pictures of buildings on fire with signs in the window that said black-owned or colored-owned. Um, How did they respond to that in North Carolina? Did they-, they, they thought I was a little strange. <laughs> they had gone through the sit-ins at, at the Woolworths counter in Greensboro. That happened before I moved to town. Um, so they knew about protests, but, you know, they hadn't lived through a riot or anything. Um, and not many people moved to Greensboro from Los Angeles anyway, so I was weird to start out with. <laughs> it was like, why is this girl and her family moving from L.A.? Um, but anyway, um, and then I moved to Greensboro, and Greensboro was very segregated. The black folks lived on one side of Market Street, and the white folks lived on the other side of Market Street. Were there two schools? Was There were four schools, three white, one black. Now, a few black students went to the white school. They, we had something called Freedom of Choice, which allowed black kids to say, hey, I want to go to the white kid, I mean, white school. There were no white kids that came to our school. Um, and um, desegregation hadn't hit the schools yet. Um, in fact, my father was one of the parents who sued the school system. Uh, but another interesting thing about Greensboro, the black people lived on one side, white people lived on the other side. I don't think there were any Jewish folks in Greensboro. If there were, it was no one knew about it. You know, I mean, it, it was just, it was, everyone saw the world in terms of black and white. Old school, right. Right, right. Um, so, but the interesting thing about it is that um, on the black side of town, people were happy with what they had. We had a, our own school, as I said. We had black doctors. We had black lawyers. We had a black bank. 
You know, so we had everything we needed on our side of town. So it wasn't that we were suffering. Uh, and the neighborhood I lived in was a very middle-class neighborhood. One of the white developers had come to the black side of town and built this uh, area called Bimbo Park and very nice houses and doctors and lawyers and, you know, people lived in them. So we had a very close-knit community. And at the school, we had teachers who really believed in us and wanted us to do well. So we may not have had the resources of the three white high schools, but we had teachers who would tell us we could be anything we wanted to be and gave us the basics to be able to compete. How was that smashing into that image in your head that if I try and do something great, I could get gunned down? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it it was a conflict, and but I knew, and and I was that first generation of students, black students, who were able to go to Ivy League schools. And my father had a sister who had gone to Mount Holyoke in the '40s. She was one of the few that snuck through. You know, there were two or three. But in the 70s, there was a big push to get more African-American students into Ivy League schools. So I guess that image kind of conflicted, but um, went along with what my father taught me was that my um, job in life (laughs) was to be as educated as I could be and be successful and find a way to give back to the community. So the way I thought I was going to do that was to go to law school and become another Thurgood Marshall or Constant Baker Motley, because those were people that I idolized. So I guess to answer your question, I started to see other people that were winning battles and doing things. Um, Could you see a an African-American president back then? Because interesting, you you went for about the highest place mm-hmm. an African-American had got it in, gone in mm-hmm. political society in, in your mind. Mm-hmm. Could I have foreseen that? Yeah. Could, no, not at all. Not at all. Impossible. Not at all. Impossible. And I don't think the people that fought for Brown versus Board of Education understood it would happen that quickly because I call myself a baby of the uh, Brown versus Board of Education because I was born the year the case came down, which was 1954. I was born in 1954. And President Obama was elected in 2008, which was 54 years after Brown versus Board of Education. And I think I I, I just, and that always um, impacted me because I'm like, I don't think they realize that this was a possibility this quickly. And it was interesting. I was in Grant Park the night he was elected, which was amazing. And he was a friend of his and still is a friend of mine. Um, And I remember I called my mother, who was 80-some years old at the time, and um, she couldn't believe it. She was like, I can't believe I lived long enough to see this. And then I called my kids, who were, you know, in, I don't know, high school, or one was in high school, one was in college. And they thought this was no big deal. Yeah, of course he won. 
You know, so I thought that was very interesting that you had young people who thought this was no big deal, and you had someone like my mother, and and probably me in a, in a lot of ways, who really thought this wasn't going to happen until they called that election that night. Was, I didn't believe it was going to happen. Was there like a single moment when you heard it? Then when I heard he is the new president, oh, yeah. that you you, oh, you yeah. remember where you were. I was in Grand Park. Right, like where exactly? I was on a riser because right. uh, BET was uh, filming and covering it. And uh, one of the editors came down and asked me, would I come up and be interviewed and talk about what it was like to be in Grant Park that night? So I said, sure. So I, you know, we were at the very top of the press risers. So I climbed up there. I was interviewed. And as I was interviewed, I stepped away, and another guy who who worked on the campaign for Barack Obama um, was going in to be interviewed next. And right as he sat down, they called the election. And it was a little past 10 o'clock in Chicago. It was really early. No one expected it to happen. No, most people didn't expect it to happen at all. But if you hoped that it was going to happen, you know, most people thought— It was going to be three in the morning. Right. right. It was going to be an Al Gore kind of fighting to the end or two weeks later, anything they could do. Um, And so when they called it, I was way up there, and the, the fellow who worked for Barack turned to me and said, what happened? And I was like— he won. <laughs> and he was getting ready to get in. So he stood up, he hugged me, and I looked out over the park, and it was just amazing. There were black people, brown people, all color people just exploding in happiness and, you know, crying and hugging. And and I could see it all. I was up there, and um, it, it was quite an experience. And so I, I had come with some people, and I said, well, I should make my way down to my friends. So I went down to my friends, and we were all waiting for Barack to come out and give his victory speech, which seemed like it took forever, because he was probably surprised, too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he came out. But in the meantime, they were showing on, they had the big um, screens up all over the park. Park. They were showing Paris exploding. They were showing people in Washington, D.C. at the White House. I mean, people were just pouring out into the streets everywhere. And to be in that park and see that was just amazing. And so uh, a little while later, I remember my PR person sent me a note to send out that she was suggesting I send out to the company about how historic this was. And we were still waiting for Barack to come out, but she had this note ready to go. And I read the note and was getting ready to prove it. And all of a sudden I just broke down and just boo-hooed for, you know, I don't know how long. But all of a sudden the impact of how hard we fought and how this was like the epitome of the civil rights movement, of what Dr. Martin Luther King had talked about, of what JFK had talked, all of it just, you know, swole up in me and just, I was overcome. It was such an amazing moment. And do you think your kids could understand that? Because it's interesting, you were describing yourself like at the top looking down. Yeah. But you're also looking almost through distance and time. Right. At everything where if you're a young person, you don't yeah. have, you're not looking down on it from a distance. Right. It's almost like you're looking up at it. Yeah. 
And I think that's why they thought it was possible, and they didn't think it was as big a deal. I think my son, was he old enough to vote? He, I think he was old enough to vote. My daughter wasn't. But that morning, going to, the, um, to vote, I had my daughter come with me. I said, you're, you're coming with me. This is an important day, and you're going to come with me. And, you know, she was 14, 15, I don't want to come. <laughs> I'm like, you're coming. And so she went to the polling place with me. You took her in to uh-huh. put the curtain Yeah, out. well, they she don't was, have curtains anymore. Oh, no curtains yeah. no So it's a, a computer, and we both stood there, and I voted. And I remember on the way walking home, because the place wasn't too far from our house, I remember explaining to her how... Sometimes things don't always work out the way you want. I was trying to prepare her for the loss. And I told her this story of a black professor at Harvard Law School. I went to Harvard Law School, and he was a professor. Um, and, and the story about him was that when he went to Harvard Law School in like the 40s or 50s, I don't know when he went, every year they would take 30 of the top students for the law review which was very prestigious. The year he um, was, you know, his grades came out, he was like number 29. And for the first time, they didn't want a black student on the law review. That year, they only took 28. They just changed the rules on him. Oh, man. And I was telling my daughter that story. I was like, you know, a lot of times you fight hard and you almost get to the finish line, and sometimes they change the rules. So I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what's going to happen tonight. But, you know, I just want you to understand some things don't always work out the way you want. What were some of the changes that you saw from the time you you went to school at Brown? Yes. Uh, So you you went from uh, North Carolina to Mm -hmm. Brown. Mm -hmm. Uh, What changes are you seeing from the time you got to college you know, through, but by 2008, you're the CEO. Right. <laughs> so you went through that whole arc yourself. Yes, that's true. Were, were there points where you're seeing changes along the way, or did it just come pretty quick? Changes to the world? I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. I remember flying off to college and I think it was like 1974. Mm-hmm. And there weren't many African-American people in airports back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Now, when I go to the airport, it, it seems fully democratized. Right. Or maybe it's an economic thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody can fly. Right. Uh, but I don't know what it was like when you left North Carolina mm-hmm. and, and went to Brown. Were you, did you find yourself the only African-American in the room a lot of times? No, not at Brown. At Brown had a pretty good track record of um, attracting and admitting uh, black students. So out of 5,000 students, I think there are about 500 African-American students. So it's about 10%, which I started college in 1972. So in 1972, that was pretty impressive. Um, So there was a a community of uh, black folks at at Brown. Um, So that was good. Um, But, you know, we were still trying to find our place. Like we sat together all in the cafeteria. We wouldn't bus our trays. Do you know what that means? Take your tray up to 
put it in to the clean thing. it off, yes. and, right? Because we felt after 200 years of slavery, we shouldn't have to bus our trays. So you just left your trays <laughs> we there? just left the trays there. <laughs> I mean, and this was was a whole population of students who did this. And who did it hurt? The other black students that came to eat after us because the trains were... But it was a political statement. We will not bust our trains. And it was... I'm sure it was like that the whole four years I was at Brown. I think it's changed by now. But I say use that as an example because it sounds so bizarre now. But... We were trying to fit in and trying not to fit in at the same time. You know, we had our own clubs. We we had our own dean. Um, and people dealt with it, you know, different ways. Some people, you know, had white friends and, and tried to, to assimilate. Others didn't. Others said, you know, this is the 70s. We all had big afros and, you know, we're black and we're proud. And, okay, we're here because we know it's a great school. But, you know, we're not going to give in. We're going to still protest. We're going to do it. So, um, so it was an interesting, it was an interesting four years. But to answer your question, I think I did see a lot of change. Like when I left um, Greensboro, my parents were divorced. My dad lived in D.C. by this time. My mother put me on a bus to go to D.C. So I went to school on a bus. Now, my father drove me from D.C. to Brown. Uh, but I took that bus a lot, and then I eventually um, graduated to the train. <laughs> so I used to take what they called the Southern Crescent in Greensboro. I'd get on the train at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, sleep on the train, and then 6 a.m. I would get into D.C., and they would take the Southern Crescent part off, and it would become Amtrak, and then we would go for Amtrak from D.C. to uh, Providence. Uh, but yeah, I remember those uh, train rides. It was a lot. And, and you know, the funny thing, I, w- I was on the Brown board for years, for like 14 years. And the first time I flew into um, the airport in Providence, I looked around. I was like, you know, none of this looks familiar. And then I remembered why. I, was like, I couldn't afford to fly. <laughs> I was never here. <laughs> I was never there. This was a totally new experience flying into Brown. Why, were there many... Uh, images of African Americans on TV when you were uh, of that age, or because people may not remember, but there were only three networks right. then. You had ABC, CBS, CBS and NBC. NBC, and then you might have a couple of local right. uh, stations, but mm-hmm. there wasn't that much to choose from. In fact, when I was a kid, at a little, maybe one or two in the morning, they just shut it down. Mm-hmm. And then all, all you heard was beep right. until about six in the morning. Right, and then it they cranked it up, up again. Right. Or in Greensboro, the funny fact, the black radio station went off the air at sundown. So you couldn't even hear R&B music after sundown. I mean, it just went off the air. Wh- so, why? Because that's the only kind of license they had. So they couldn't operate in the dark. It was really, uh, really sad. <laughs> uh, but the thing that, uh, well, let me answer your question first. There were very few images of black people on those three networks. And you, you hear people say when there was someone black on, you would call your relatives. Diana Ross is going to be on Ed Sullivan tonight. The Jackson Five are going to oh, be man. on. You know? oh, I mean, it was a big deal. It was an event. Of, of, of an event. 
You know, the Supremes and the Temptations are going to be on together. Uh, you had shows like Hullabaloo. I mean, it's, I'm really dating myself. But, you know, the most, most of artists you saw were musical artists. Um, and those were my heroes. I mean, Motown was a big thing. I had a little, you know, turntable in my little room, and I'd listen to the Supremes and Temptations at Copacabana, and I knew when they went to London. So you had role models. You knew there were opportunities, but you didn't see that much of it. You know, I remember, do you remember Julia? Oh, Diane Carroll. Right. Great show. Unmarried woman. I think her husband had died. She was a nurse. Her boss was a white man. She had a son. And it was all about her life. That was really historic. Um, and one of the few shows on. And then you had shows like, um, um, who was Kingfish? Uh, Amos and Andy. And shows that, you know, weren't showing the kind of images we thought were uh, appropriate. But there were very few shows on. Um, and that was the state of affairs maybe until the 80s when Cosby came about. And Cosby was such a big hit that a lot of the other networks tried to copy it. And then BET was started in 1980. And what was so, your reaction when you first heard of BET? Uh, I didn't hear of BET for a long time because we did not have cable in DC. If you remember, the urban areas were the last to be wired. That's, that's so, right. you know, the outer areas had um, uh, cable first. So I didn't learn about BET until 1984, maybe 83, 84, when they became a client of mine. When I was practicing law, I graduated from law school, and I was at a firm uh, called Steptoe & Johnson, and BET was a client. And I was focusing on communications, and I was like, this is a great idea, a 24-hour network targeted to African Americans. And, but we still couldn't get it in D.C., so I couldn't see what it was. It wasn't until... 85, 86, that we got cable. That's right. Yeah. So I thought it was a great idea, uh, but it was it was a while before I could actually see it, even though I was there outside council. And how did you get attracted into it? Into BET? Yeah. Um, I was doing legal work for them. Uh, I wanted to do more. Um, they couldn't afford to have outside counsel. Um, I got to know Bob Johnson. Ty Brown was a, a partner at, um, at Steptoe. I worked for him, and he was a good friend of Bob Johnson. He was the corporate secretary for the company, so he did all their corporate work. And um, one day, Bob, as when we went to lunch, we were actually working on the DC cable franchise. Trying, Bob Johnson was trying to get the cable franchise, and there was a lunch break. We were down at DC City Council, and um, Ty had to go back to work. So Bob asked me to go to lunch, and during lunch, he said, "Asked me would I be interested in in coming over and starting the legal department." And um, I tried not to be too excited, but it, sound <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like the perfect job. Uh, I was already interviewing because I was a fifth-year associate and at that time at the firm. And at that time, you either had to buckle down and 
kill yourself to make partner. Partnership usually uh, was offered the seventh year, or you left. And I never wanted to practice law, so I was only at the law firm because George Bush was still in the office or Reagan, somebody. There were a lot of Republicans during that time period. Um, so my plan to go into government kind of fizzled out. Um, so I had started interviewing in New York uh, with corporate so you were thinking of going into government? Were you ever that thinking was my of plan. running for office? No. Or, no, never thinking about running for office. I went to the Kennedy School. Uh, at the same time, I went to law school. I got my master's in public policy. And my, my goal was to go into government, to be assistant secretary of something. Assistant secretary. Yeah, you weren't was, thinking chairman well, and CEO. No, no, not at all. <laughs> I wasn't thinking corporate life at all. I mean, when I was in law school, I wouldn't even take you know, some corporate law courses because I was, uh, to me, that was selling out. You know, I was going to law school to change the world and help people not work for a corporation that was going to, you know, do all those bad things you always hear corporations do. So, no, I was not. I was a child of the 70s. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 60s and 70s. Okay. Yeah, through through and through. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to pause now. Because Kevin, the manager, tells me it's time to talk about the people who make all this possible, our partners. Went to meet my friend Irish Dave Nyhill when he was in town to do some stand-up at the Improv. He killed it, by the way, just killed it. So we sit down the morning of his performance. And you know one of the first things he says to me? That's one handsome new website you've got there, Cal. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. i got to work on my Irish accent. But here's the point. Irish Dave was not joking around. Irish Dave knows my backstory with technology, as do many of my listeners. I'm the guy who once thought you typed in D-O-T-C-O-M to get .com at the end of a domain. That's why it makes me so proud to tell everybody about my new website on Squarespace. If Squarespace can make me look great, imagine what it can do for you. So go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, in order to get 10% off your next domain name or website. You'll be smiling. And of course, I've got to tell you about ZipRecruiter. I spoke earlier about trying to get to know how my listeners think. That goes for the ads too. I've gotten emails from people telling me they actually wait for the storytelling around the ads and love the enthusiasm in my voice. But to be completely honest, I've also received some emails from listeners who tell me that my tone of voice can go, well, a little too far over the top for ZipRecruiter. So you know what? I'm going to downplay this session. I'm going to tell you as matter-of-factly as I can that I know the folks at ZipRecruiter. They've taken me around their office in Santa Monica. They've explained their algorithms to me. So I know that if you need to hire 
All you need to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And if you type in ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, you'll get a free trial. Man, it's hard for me to not scream this to the rooftops. But I just did it. And we're back. What would you say the best thing you've done over the years Hmm. to advance our society? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I've been at BUT 32 years now. And I think I've been lucky enough to do uh, quite a few great things. Um, But I think to sum it up, I I think I've helped change the face of television. Now, I ran into a young guy at the Apple store the other day who said, who recognized me, and he said, oh, my God. You're in the Hall of Fame. Do do you know who you are? Do you know what you've done? (laughs) And I thought he was going to say, you changed the face of television. He's like, you've changed the world. And I was like, wow, that's really something. So that's a little bit more than I would say. But I think images are important. And I think uh, BET has definitely changed um, uh, the images of African Americans on television. I think we proved the case that if you provide quality entertainment to our audience, they will show up in numbers, huge numbers. Uh, we show that with a show we did that we took from. Um, uh, the CW, the CW had canceled it, and um, they gave us the right to produce it. And on the CW, it was getting 1.5 million viewers. We put it on BET, it got 7.7 million viewers the first night. And it was off the air for two years, so there was some pent-up demand. But, you know, we, we took over production, we kept the same quality, we kept the writers, blah, blah, blah. And I think it just proved that our audience is hungry for quality programming. Now, that sounds a little odd right now when you when we're in kind of, you know, the um, golden days of, of black programming. You know, you have Empire on uh, Fox and you have Shondaland on Thursday nights and Netflix is doing all kind of, you know, right now with all the different networks uh, and uh, people have realized what we've known for years is that black folks watch a lot of TV. <laughs> and if you want to build a network or grow a network, It'd be help if you can get a, a great program that this audience is loyal to. It works. You know, Tyler Perry showed that on on TBS with House of Pain and Meet the Browns, um, and so I think we were the first to do it, and um, I think that was a, a big thing and could have changed the world. Uh, I'm also proud of the fact that uh, I think we helped elect Barack Obama. Uh, we didn't tell anybody to vote for him, but we had uh, get out the vote drives and covered his campaign. Um, you know, when something happens in our community or in our world that affects African Americans, they come to BET first. 
So we've been a, a constant source of news and information, um, giving our audience a place to vent when they want to vent or be angry when they want to be angry. I love the fact that over the years, especially um, since I took over 13 years ago as CEO, we've had uh, a number of award shows that honor uh, black people who have done great things like Black Girls Rock, BET Honors, uh, BET Awards. We've tried to work all that into, you know, a typical award show so that our young people can see Dr. Keith Black, who's a brain surgeon. Right. Uh, doc, I mean, uh, Ken Chenault, who was CEO of American Express, um, T.D. Jakes. So they don't just think they have to go into sports or music to be successful. There are other ways to do it. And I think we get a lot of credit for that. People appreciate the fact that we honor our own. And as they're protesting, you know, Oscar So White or um, some of these other things, they can depend on BET uh, to do that several times a year. Um, we were the first African-American company to go public on the New York Stock Exchange. I think that said a lot to, uh, again, the African-American community about how you can grow a company and be successful and raise capital um, without, you know, staying a, a family-owned business. And it might not be the way everyone wants to go, but I think we proved that it can be done. Uh, I think uh, over the years I've given a lot of executives opportunities they wouldn't get other places. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that I'm proud of. And I think this is not the career I thought I would have, um, but it's been a great career. And it's, it's, it's provided me a way to give back and do quality work, uh, have a successful career and give back at the same time. What's going on in your mind in regard to where women are during mm. this time. I've, and is I, like I'm looking at the expression on your face yeah. when, I, <laughs> when I said that. I said, wow. Mm. Uh, because it, it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm just trying to understand what women are going through right. in, in this time. And to be perfectly honest, every time I have a conversation, I kind of sit back mm. stunned and just saying to myself, Cal, how, how could you not know? Mm -hmm. But I guess I was not having the conversation, mm -hmm. or maybe women weren't talking about it yeah. until recently. I think that's the, the, the biggest problem, is that women weren't talking about it. And someone asked me the question, um, Janelle Monet had a luncheon the other day, and they asked me, how did I see the future for young women? And my answer was, I think it's going to be a lot brighter because women are going to find their voices much earlier now. I think women have lost sight of their voices and their values by trying to fit in and trying to be successful, whether it's in business or whether it's in, you know, the entertainment uh, area. And I think they've been told so many different things by different people in terms of how to be successful. You know, whether it's, you know, there's a casting couch or you have to keep things to yourselves or don't complain. And I think this younger generation, having lived through this, is going to speak up a lot earlier. Did African-Americans have to go through the same stage? Is there a correlation here? Oh, for sure. For sure. 
And people have asked me over the years, because I'm a woman and I'm African-American, um, which is harder? And I used to think it was being African-American. Um, actually told Hillary Clinton that once when I was trying to explain why I wasn't going to lead her campaign or be out there and when she was running against Barack Obama. I thought it was more important at that point for us to have an African-American president. But over the past couple of years, I, I think it's harder to be a woman in corporate America um, and in a lot of circumstances because of what we're learning and how much women have suffered in silence. And is there... But they're both hard. <laughs> they're both hard. It's, unless you're in that position, it's very hard to comprehend. Mm -hmm. you, like you can intellectually understand it. You could hear the story. Mm -hmm. Or you can even hear the story about we're not busting our trays. Right, right, right. And I, I, I get it. Mm -hmm. uh, but what well, what's hard, what I'm trying to grasp, and I, I was putting two different images in my head. I remember Rachel Robinson once telling me mm -hmm. when she was young, uh, this is Jackie Robinson's yeah. wife. Mm -hmm. I, I know you know, right. but oh, I, they yeah, may the not audience. know. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and her parents took her to a restaurant, mm -hmm. and they had different menus oh. for white people and for black people. Wow. And the prices on the, the black menu were higher. And I started to think in my mind, whoa, 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 hold on here. Is that, is that any different in a way from mm -hmm. a woman going into a job, doing the same work as a man, right. and getting paid less? Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Right. That's amazing. And I had never heard that story about the higher prices for um, black people. But I went to Greensboro, back to my hometown, um, about three weeks ago, and they honored me at the International Civil Rights Museum, which is basically a museum in Greensboro built around the Woolworths lunch counter. And I used to eat at that lunch counter every day. I worked across the street at Belk Department Store when I was in high school. And so uh, they've, they've taken that whole store and turned it into a, a museum. And so they were giving us a tour through the museum. And they have the lunch counter set up just the way it was uh, in the 60s, you know, ice cream, 10 cents, hot dogs, 5 cents, whatever. But one of the things they had, which really uh, left an impact on me, they had a Coke machine, an old Coke machine, and it had two sides so that you could put it in a building and, you know, one side was for um, black um, folks and the other side was for white people, so if they had a colored area or whatever. On the white side, the Coke was five cent. On the black side, the Coke was 10 cent. It's like, how do you even justify something like that, especially to a group of people who are probably making less money? Well, no, no question making less money. And you're going to charge, I mean, it was a two-sided Coke machine. One side for blacks and the other side for whites. And is it just a matter of, well, that's the way it is, so if we want the Coke, we right. put in the dime. And, and is this sort of the way women have been living over time where, okay, this is the way it is, and if I complain, well... I may be pushed out. Showed out totally, right. 
I think that has something to do with it. And there's always a breaking point, you know, with those four students in Greensboro who decided tonight was the night to sit at the counter and not move. They knew they weren't going to be served, but they, were, they didn't move. And they came back every day for, until the summer was over, I mean, until summer break. And then I understand students from my high school, where I went, ended up going to high school, went and sat in for them. Um, so, you know, I think that's the moment we're in now with women, where they just said, okay, this is enough. You know, and, and one or two or three brave women spoke up. And now you see this outpouring. I mean, did you watch uh, uh, Oscars the other night? Uh, yeah. When um, Ashley Judd and um, um, the three women came out, all who had been victims of Harvey Weinstein. But the one who, uh, you know, hurt my heart the most was the one who was in the middle. And I think her name is Annabelle... Scarsosi, something like that. Anyway, she was in a movie with Wesley Snipes years ago about a mixed couple. It was a Spike Lee movie, yeah, right? Yeah, Spike Lee movie. And um, I loved her. And she had just was blackballed and disappeared. And it was just, it just hurt my heart to see her again. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if the whole thing was because of Harvey Weinstein. But, but anyway, I think, you know, this is a moment, and it, I think it's a question of what do we do with this moment? Is something good that's going to come out of it? And I signed up for the Time's Up movement uh, and went to a couple of meetings. And the committee I'm on is something you asked me about before. It's the boardless committee, and we're focused on getting more women on corporate boards because that seems like a place where you can, we can have an impact. And explain to me how these boards work, because I don't even know what a board of directors actually does or if, if they do the same things for all companies. Yeah. And, and you've been on a lot of boards. I have. Um, and uh, boards operate differently for different companies, but if it's a publicly traded board, either on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, your responsibility as a board member is to do everything you can to increase shareholder value for people who buy, you know, the public who buys shares, um, and to work with the CEO and the management team to make sure you know there's proper governance, that um, you know if diversity uh, guidelines are followed, to to make suggestions on how to make the company more profitable. Uh, so most companies have a board of maybe eight to twelve people, um, and it was something that not a lot of people used to know about. And then Sarbanes Oxley came along where we found out that CEOs were putting their friends. It was, a, it was a typical old boy network where CEOs would, you know, I play golf with these four guys. I'm going to put them on my board. And they're going to do what I ask what them I to ask do. What I ask them to do and in, re, in to regards be... to my salary, in regards to, and then you have Enron where a company is, is corrupt and, you know, board members get in trouble. And so the government came out with rules, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, and uh, one of the rules was you had to have a diverse board and they had to be independent. They couldn't be, you know, your friends. You had to use search firms. You had to, you know, not just keep it within your circle of friends. So that opened up the doors for minorities and women. 
Um, so it's been a, um, a goal of a lot of companies recently to get more women and um, uh, people of color on the board. Um, and it's worked for some companies, and some companies, you know, are still, uh, their board are still primarily white males. Um, so... What if, difference does it make? How, how much difference does it make having one or two women on a board? Well... It depends on who you ask. Uh, I heard someone that does a lot of board research says it doesn't really make a difference until you have three women on a board. And then they feel confident enough to speak up. I think one, I, I disagree with that. I think one or two makes a difference. I mean, you should have, you know, as many as possible and you shouldn't just have a token. But I think in my life, if I'm on a board, and I said this, I'm on the Twitter board, I talked to their women's group uh, last week. I said, my, my first responsibility is to uh, ensure that company is profitable and is doing well for its shareholders. But I'm a black woman, and being a black woman, if I'm in the boardroom, I'm going to see things through my perspective. I'm going to try to help get more black women in there, or if there are issues with, you know, the management team or executives at the company, you know, I'm more than willing to help out. You know, I'll go speak anywhere. I'll try to inspire and... Um, I, you know, I have a Rolodex of people. If you're having trouble finding a head of HR, I can help. Um, so, you know, I think as a black woman, it's my responsibility uh, to help on the diversity side. Um, so the more diverse a board is, um, the more perspectives you have, and hopefully certain things don't happen. Does it also keep the CEO in line in a way? Because yes. he, he doesn't have his friends there. Right. And it, it, he may not really... Does he get to choose who gets on ha- the board? He has some say in it. It's ultimately um, should be up to what they call nominating and governance committee. Um, but, you know, the, the CEO does have some input. But it is a, a very uh, much more um, objective uh, process now, and it does keep the CEOs in uh, in line. And if there's something the CEO is doing wrong, the board is the one who votes to get rid of him or her. Could be a woman also. Um, but um, so you know that's why you want it to be independent. You want them to have be that check on the CEO. How many times does the board meet in a year? I think most boards um, of publicly traded companies meet between four, six times a year. And is it just for a day or is it over a couple of days? It's, um, for some companies it's four days, some it's for two days. Um, some have specific strategy meetings that may be longer. Uh, there are also committee meetings uh, apart from the board meeting. So it varies from um, company to company. And what are these meetings like? Are they like friendly? Do you end up breaking out some tequila or do you, uh, I don't know, I've never been at one. Yeah, um, they're, um, I would say, cordial. I mean, usually people on a board get along. Um, There's no tequila. (laughs) There may be wine at the board dinner. A lot of times you have a dinner the night before. Um, And uh, it's usually management presentations. Um, you know, on the financial state of the business, on the business strategy. Uh, and the board has pre-read materials 
that they read beforehand, and um, you know they're expected to come and ask questions. And uh, sometimes it can get a little tense if the board doesn't agree with the direction the, comp- the CEO is going in, or you know doesn't think a particular executive is is up to par. Uh, but usually they're they're pretty cordial. Um, interesting. The USA Today did an article on uh, politics in the court in the boardroom and whether that enters into it. I think it was during the first Obama election. And for example, I'm on the Marriott board and the CEO of Marriott, or the chairman now, uh, Bill Marriott, everyone knows is a big Republican. And most people know I'm a big Democrat. So the the, the uh, point of the article was it must be tense in that boardroom with, you know, people that are on both sides of political uh, spectrum. And they interviewed both of us and we both said, no, politics don't enter the boardroom. You're there to help the company. You're not there to, you know, to focus on political issues or even discuss political issues. Um, so that's usually not not part of uh, what a board is about. Okay, so you're the CEO now. Yes. And you've been on boards. Yes. Does being on a board help you to be a CEO because you know what it's like to be on the board? Yes. I think it's it's like a mini business school experience. And I started going on boards when I was chief operating officer, and it really helped me um, um, see how other CEOs handle a board, see the kind of questions the board asks. Um, And it it also provided a nice network of of CEOs for me to to get to know, to do business with. That was a possibility. Uh, But there are a lot of benefits of being on the board. But I enjoy it because you do get to see different styles of CEOs, and you get to learn other businesses. Um, You know, I mentioned I'm on the Twitter board, and um, I thought that was a great way for me to learn about technology and to learn about Silicon Valley, and uh, it's been just that. Um, So, um, yeah, there are a lot of good reasons uh, to serve on boards. So last two questions. Okay. What advice would you give to young males and also young females Hmm. as they were moving ahead and trying to deal with these issues of the day? And would they be very different messages or would Hmm. they be the same for both? That's interesting. That's a great question. I think what, what came to my mind, first of all, with men, and I've had many men that have reported to me over the years, and I've seen many men in boardrooms. Um, I think my advice to young men would be to listen more. And I think that I don't want to, you know, generalize across the board, but I think that would make um, men better managers, because I think sometimes men are led to believe. To be a leader, you have to have an answer quickly. And they step all over other people, especially women, because maybe a woman doesn't speak up as much. Or maybe the male is an introvert, and it takes him longer to speak up. But I think by doing that, you lose the benefit of having diverse voices and and making the best decision. And I see that in general more with men 
than women. And for women, my advice would be to speak up more (laughs) (laughs) and earlier and to be true to who you are. Don't worry about you know, trying to fit in or or being one of the boys or worrying too much about, you know, uh, what they might think of you as a female executive. I think you need to, you know, we need to speak out more and uh, be more confident in our own views. I mean, no one's always right in business. In fact, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. Uh, there are a lot of mistakes made in business. And most of the time, if, if something goes wrong, they write it off of the books and they keep it moving. You know, it's not a horrible thing. It's, you know, a part of life. Oh, we tried that new business and it didn't work. Well, you know, we'll write off the cost and start another business. And I think uh, men are, again, not generalizing too much, but are better at doing that. And I think they're given a pass more often than women and people of color. You look at the number of female CEOs there have been, and, you know, if they have one bad year or they make one big mistake, they may be gone. You know, in the male side of things, you know, the, the joke is sometimes men fail up. They fail, but they get a, another chance. Um either at a higher level or a different company. Um, so there, there's still a lot of things we have to work at in the corporate world um, in terms of uh, pay equity, in terms of treating people fairly, in terms of managing different styles of people and people with different talents. Um, and again, I hope that's something that comes out of these recent um, discussions. I'm going to put all this in my pocket and take it around with me as I talk with more and more and more women. It's been an absolute delight listening to you and uh, and doing a little speaking myself, but mostly listening. Uh, And I took a lot out of this last hour. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Well, you asked very great questions, so thank you. It's been an honor to talk to you. I appreciate it. Hey, you're in the Hall of Fame. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Time to wrap it up. Let's start with a tip of the hat to my friends at Squarespace. If you want a beautiful and unique website, Squarespace is the place to go. You're going to see yourself and your business in a whole new way. And so will the rest of the world. So go to squarespace.com and use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, for 10% off a domain name or website. You'll quickly see exactly what I'm talking about. And one last shout out today for ZipRecruiter. If you're looking to hire, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and try it out for free. All you got to do is type in your job description, and with a single click, you're going to have qualified candidates within 24 hours. ZipRecruiter's algorithms will find you the people 
and the talent you need. And they're going to get that talent straight to you. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Time for a little gratitude. Thank you, Tim Ferriss, for pushing and pulling me to start my own podcast. It's one of the best moves I've ever made. Thank you, Luz Fleming, for your audio assistance. And to Lex and Alex at Midroll. And we can never forget Kevin the Manager and his entire team at Say Something Entertainment. See you next week.